Whenever you find yourself in a position where you've got the title, you're making good money, you're getting the business, but you still find that something's missing. I have found that more often than not, what's missing is the community, the relationships. I've learned a number of times that it's important to put others first as they're ultimately the ones that are gonna help you get what you want. I try to give my people the space to perform. At an early age, I was given that chance to make mistakes and learn from them. And giving people that same space in my organization is something that has made a huge difference this year. If you don't have the answers to a problem, ask better questions, choose your circle of influence wisely, and then just keep in mind the bigger picture when things sometimes go awry. The voice you just heard is Parker Grieving. From a young age, Parker was taught to be a problem solver. By asking better questions of himself and others, Parker is consistently able to find better answers to the challenges facing him in business and in life. As a result, he is consistently learning and improving, and he brings this growth mindset to everyone he leads. Parker's thought-provoking insights will lead you to consider the ways in which you can solve more of life's challenges quickly and effectively in order to consistently improve yourself and your life. This is Cutco Vector's Tennessee Division Manager, Parker Grevy. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My guest today is Parker Grevy, who is the Tennessee Division Manager for Cutco and Vector Marketing. Parker's been in the Cutco Vector business since 2010. He started while he was a college student at the Ohio State University, ran a branch two times during college, graduated in 2014 and became a district manager and took over the helm of the Tennessee division late in the year of 2017. Parker and his team have produced over $9 million in Cutco sales, and he has had a significant breakthrough that has happened here recently in 2021. Uh, where he has really been able to take his office to the top of the charts in the company. We're going to talk a little bit about his career, his experiences, and some of his current success as well. Parker Grevy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. All right. Well, listen, you're one of the newest division managers in the company here, having only been promoted a few years ago. And I think it'd be great for a lot of our audience to be able to get to know you more personally. And so why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about your personal background from before Cutco? Yeah. So I was actually born in Midland, Michigan. And anybody who's from Midland, Michigan 
uh, knows that that's where Dow Chemicals uh, headquarters is. So my dad actually got started with Dow Chemicals out of college, which uh, took him to Houston, Texas. So I grew up uh, in Houston for seven, eight years of my life as a as a young person. And then uh, my mom's side of, of uh, the family is originally from Cincinnati. So they moved back to Cincinnati. Uh, that's really where I kind of grew up is in Cincinnati, Ohio. My mom actually graduated uh, from the University of Cincinnati, the DAP program, uh, which is a pretty prestigious art program at uh, UC. And then my dad, pretty much most of my life has been a C-level executive. He got his degree from Ohio State in uh, logistics and operations management. And so kind of growing up as a kid, I was always learning from my learning from my parents, learning from my dad. And you know, I can think back to, to being a little kid, you know, just always, always being asked the tough questions and really being taught how to problem solve and mm. think critically about everything. If something went wrong, it was how could this have gone better? What could you have done differently? So really kind of groomed for the professional world from a young age, from what I can remember. I remember being a little kid and having dinner and, and I was holding the fork wrong or holding the knife wrong, table manners. And it was not a conversation about why you need to hold the fork, right? It was, hey, when you're in an interview, a lot of companies like to take people out to dinner to see how they, you know, how they conduct themselves and how they carry themselves. And it was always a, you're always being interviewed kind of perspective that was really bestowed on me early on as a kid. One thing I remember my dad just teaching me is, you know, how you treat everybody is more important than how you treat the CEO of a company. And always showing gratitude to wait staff and servers and saying pleases and thank yous. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of a little bit about my background. And then my, uh, my mother's uh, father, so my grandfather on my mother's side, he owns an electrical contracting company. And so growing up as a kid, I think since I was 16 or 17 years of age, I worked for him in the summertime. And I was a gopher. I just go for this, go for that, go do all the stuff no one else wants to do. But it really taught me the value of, of, of work ethic. And, and even my dad, ever since I was 15, uh, was like, you're going to have a job and you're going to learn to, to you know, provide for yourself and work for, for the money that you have. Not everything. And you know, my dad kind of grew up poor. He has nine, well, he's one of nine. So he has eight siblings and he's the youngest. So he's kind of the runt of the family and, and just grew up poor. And so that kind of has carried on in, in the way that he raised us all to, to work hard for what you have and what you want. And, uh, and I was very fortunate enough to be surrounded by individuals in my life that worked really hard and, you know, taught me the value of work ethic and, and the value of a dollar. I remember being working for my grandfather's company. I was making, if I remember correctly, it was like eight bucks an hour, or nine bucks an hour back then. And that was above minimum wage. So I was excited about it, but it was just <laughs> grunt work. I remember being in Indianapolis, uh, working on a Jividon plant, Jividon, they make, uh, food and and flavoring. And you have to be at all times on the plant wearing fire retardant clothing. So I'm out there in a hard hat, boots, you know, fire retardant pants. And then on top of that, I got overalls on it's the middle of August and I'm digging a trench <laughs> and I'm like, you know, just sweating out the wazoo and, and, uh, yeah, just, you know, that, that level of work ethic. I, I remember being in high school, I had three jobs at, at any given time. I worked for my grandfather during the day, and then at night I'd either go work retail, and then I also worked at a pizza shop at night. So, 
that was always really instilled in me at an early age. Excellent. Thank you for sharing all that. I really enjoyed hearing uh, those things and just about, you know, how your work ethic was groomed, how your, you know, mindset around how we treat other people was groomed. A lot of cool, uh, cool stuff that came out of that. That was neat. How did you end up finding Cutco? So it was 2010. If I remember correctly, it was the middle of June. I always tell my team I was I think I had I was I was off that day work for my grandfather or something. I was, you know, sitting around on the couch watching ESPN fold my laundry or something. I think I remember correctly. My phone rang and I didn't recognize the number, so I didn't pick it up. And then they called me again. So I was double tapped. Uh, for, those, <laughs> for those in the business, they'll they'll get that reference. And I just remember it was a young lady on the other line and 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 she was she was fumbling over her words and she was so I could tell she was so nervous and you know she had name dropped a guy that you know, I hadn't spoken to in a year and a half. And I was like, who? And she's, you know, cautiously like, uh, you know, says his name back to me. And I'm like, really? He recommended me? I mean, whatever, I'll come check it out, right? I'm trying to help her out a little bit, right? I can tell she's got, you know, her script that she's got to go through. And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll set an interview. And she, uh, she's like, uh, yeah, my manager can meet with you today. I was like, oh, I guess it's going to have to work because I can't do it any other day. So yeah, I'll be out there. So I, drive 45 minutes to the east side of the city and I walk into an office and there's, there's probably 25 people in this office. And I'm like, what the heck am I walking into? And, uh, this young looking dude in a suit walks up to me and it's Chad Wardenberg uh, <laughs> and he introduces himself and he's like, hi, I'm Chad. I'm the owner. And I'm kind of like, Oh, nice to meet you, Chad. I'm sitting down, I'm filling out an application and I look around and there's a, there's a girl from from high school, the group that we kind of ran around with in high school. And she's, she's like whispering over to me and she's trying to get my attention. She's like, did you get the letter too? And I'm like, no, what? Like they called me. She's like, Oh, this is weird. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, with the old school vector model, you know, you take you back into the office, do a pre-screen. Then we do the group interview. And I was nervous. I, it was my first professional interview. I'd, I'd only really you worked in retail and like I said, the food industry. So it was, you know, I, I put a suit and tie on and I'm, I'm like, Oh, I'm not going to get this job. It's a, it's a real job. I'm not going to get it. It's professional. Right. I don't have anything on my resume that stands out and, you know, pretty hard push away from Chad and I got the job. So I was, All right. pretty, I was pretty pumped about it. I remember going home to my, to my mom's house and went down there and it's like, Hey mom, I got a new job. She's like, Oh, what are you doing? And uh, the first words that came out of my mouth were, you know, I'm selling knives. And at this point, I'm like word vomiting on my mom, right? I'm like, yeah, they cut pennies and rope and leather. My mom's like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'm like, <laughs> mom, they're great. We need these knives. My mom's like, we do not need new knives. <laughs> and, you know, I'm checking out the knives in our house, trying to figure out how they compare to the knives that I just saw in the interview. And all of a sudden, I've become this knife expert, right? And I was really excited about it. And my mom looked at me and she goes, honey, do you really think people are going to buy knives from you? You already have three jobs. You have a real job. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shot to the heart, right? Thanks, mom. Appreciate the vote of confidence. And went down to my dad's house and he's like, oh, that'll be some good experience for you. You know, I think you should do it. And, uh, you know, sales is, is one of the most valuable skills you can learn. And nice. And, and I really think you should do it. And even though it went against uh, kind of what my mom had hoped I had done, right? That I was very fortunate. They, they kind of opened up their their Rolodex and 
provided me with some help to get some names and numbers and people that I could could reach out to. So that's uh, that's kind of how it all started. That summer sold uh, sold thirty k. So had a had a pretty good summer for what I believed was a pretty good summer back then. Did a bunch of appointments. I was never the best sales representative, but I always did a lot of appointments. So that's what I tell my team all the time is you don't have to be great at the job. You just got to show a lot of people. And so that's kind of what I did. Excellent. Excellent. What were some of the early experiences and lessons that stand out? Early experiences and lessons. Don't quit. That was definitely one that was one that was reiterated by everybody in my life that, that I respected. It was finish what you started, right? You, mm-hmm. you signed up for this. You, you made a commitment to do it. I mean, you didn't make a commitment to do it for a week. You didn't make a commitment to do it for 10 days. You made a commitment that you were going to do this for the summer. I remember having that conversation with my grandfather, telling him I wasn't going to work for him this summer. I was going to be selling knives and decisions have consequences. And and regardless of, of the decision, you got to stick with it. Definitely. Uh, the decisions that we make do have consequences that sometimes we don't realize in the moment how profound those consequences can be. I mean, everything as simple as the decision you made to give a chance to come into the interview, right? Even though you could tell, right, the girl calling you, you know, didn't feel too confident about it. The decision you made when you were in the interview and that, you know, the friend of yours from high school was questioning whether you guys should even be there and you didn't jump on that bandwagon and think, oh yeah, I'm going to get out of here or something like that. Right. You were, you were there to get the info and to, with interest and to, you know, make your own decision. Those are all decisions that have had a profound impact on your life in the last uh, 10, 11 years now since then. So very powerful for sure. And you ran, you ran a branch twice during college. Tell us about those experiences. Yeah, I did. Two summers, I decided to, to run a branch in 20. 12 and 2013. Um, yep. It was a whirlwind, to be honest. It was a lot of responsibility, learning how to manage money to not only pay myself to some degree, but also pay my you know, employees, my receptionists. I learned early on that you gotta you gotta spend money to make money. And then I also learned that, you know, sacrifice and delayed gratification go hand in hand with success, is that you can't want success and not be willing to sacrifice some things along the way. So I learned, you know, I kind of made a commitment to myself that, you know, if I was going to run a branch summer, I was going to do it for the full summer. And that meant that, you know, if I had to miss a family vacation, I had to miss a family vacation. If I had to miss a concert with my buddies, I had to miss a concert with my buddies because I made a commitment to, to running the office and doing it for the full term. And even if it got tough, I I wasn't going to give up, you know, early. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are great lessons that I'm sure you're sharing with your your people uh, nowadays, and it's it's one of the, the the most important things I try to convey to branch managers who are going out there is that you're choosing something that's a summer position. It's not uh, okay. I'll work the full summer if it works out well, right? It's I'm working the full summer. I am going to commit to the full entire four-month period or three-month period, depending on when somebody starts, but through the entire summer. And there's so many stories of branch managers that struggle at first and then turn it around and become great. That was my story, my first branch summer. We stunk the first two months, and then it was like the lights came on and we got it together. And the latter two months of the summer, we were able to have a lot of good success that I wouldn't have experienced if I had sort of mentally packed it in halfway through. So I think that that's a key 
thing that people learn running a branch office that applies to a lot more in business and a lot more in life after that. Right. And I'm, and I remember even having conversations with Chad at the, at the end of the summer, like, okay, I'm done. (laughs) I'm I'm never going to do that again. But some great advice I got from my father and, and, and mentors in my life were keep the door open for yourself. And I tell my people this all the time is you can't be impacted if you shut the door. And it's very difficult mentally to try and reopen a door, but it takes little to no effort to just keep the door open. So one thing I just tell my people all the time is don't shut the door on yourself. And, and, that, and I think for me, for four, three years of college, four years of college, that's one thing that I did a really good job of is just kept the door open. I showed up to TLA calls. Even in the back of my head, if, if I was having kind of conflicted emotions about what I wanted to do, I knew the skills I was learning and the environment that I was choosing to be a part of was beneficial for me. And so keeping that door open with the Leadership Academy and, and Vector uh, allowed me to be able to walk through that door when the time came. Uh, yeah. and so that next summer after, after my first branch, you know, I was able to walk through it again. And, and just keeping that door open was, was a huge part of my retention, I believe. I like that. I like that. I've come to call that putting yourself in a position of choice and just always trying to put yourself in the best possible position where you have the most options to be able to choose from the most really good options to be able to choose from. And then, you know, deciding when the time comes, which option you're going to, you're going to roll with, but always keeping that door open. As you said, what made you decide to become a DM after college? It was a, uh, it was a tough decision. I was interviewing with, with corporate America. I had been kind of placed in a kind of a, a really good position because of my, my dad's status and, and network and connections. I remember the time came when I was graduating from Ohio State and it was like, all right, now it's you know, time to check out the real world and see what that's like. And it was, it was fun you know, getting courted by companies and having them fly you to their corporate headquarters and, and getting the sales pitches. And, and that was really a cool experience. But I didn't really find what I was looking for as far as freedom and flexibility. And, you know, I remember, I remember sitting with my dad, uh, we were on our back deck one night and, and he's going through his cell phone he's like, Oh yeah, I'll get you connected with so-and-so and so-and-so. And I'm taking, you know, feverish notes on all these people. Cause I'm, I'm having to network with them. And I remember there was one name that popped up. My dad's like, Oh, I wonder what his title is now. And, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's like, oh, he's the he's the COO of of Cintas now, and I'm like, so you want me to just call it the COO of Cintas, Dad? He's like, yeah, I should probably call him beforehand, shouldn't I? I was like, yeah, please do. <laughs> and so I, I have always known my whole life that I was going to be able to kind of use that network and tap into that if I ever wanted to. So for me, the decision was I want to make a name for myself. I want to do things on my own. I've always been a mm a very independent person, not relying on others has been kind of a staple of who I am in my life. I even think back to when I was a little kid, my parents always joke about this because of how independent I've always been, where I had this phrase when I was very, very young, just learning words and sentences for the first time. And it was Parker do. And it came out in everything. They'd be trying to tie my shoes and be like, Hey, we got to go. Like we're, we're running late. And I'd be like, no, Parker do. And I just wanted to do everything myself. And so that has been kind of a staple, I believe, in my life is just that level of independence and wanting to, to figure things out on my own and make a name for myself. So 
one of the reasons I chose to become a district manager is, is really the freedom and flexibility. I've always had an entrepreneurial mindset. And I really looked at DM as a playground, as a, as a training ground where someday I'm going to want to own a business. I still want to own multiple businesses, probably more than, uh, than I care to mention. And I knew that I was going to have to learn those skills at some point. And so the district was scary because there was no guarantee of anything, but it was a challenge. And for me, that was enticing. It was alluring. And the freedom and flexibility was the biggest thing that I really fell in love with with the company that I had kind of become spoiled by, right? You're a college student. You get to make your own schedule, make your own income. And I'd really kind of become spoiled by that culture that the company has. Uh, so when I was interviewing with Corporate America, it was a certain number of days off. Here's how much money you're going to make. And it was just, it was a lot more constricting. And, and I kind of gravitated away from that. Right, right. You know, so many people look at those elements of a corporate job and they they like the fact that there are certain things that are, you know, pretty much guaranteed. And I just feel like the real guarantee is that you're guaranteed to not have a lot of opportunity there. You're guaranteed to not be able to control your own opportunity, your own upward mobility, your own income, right? And that's what's cool here is that we have a chance to advance as quickly as we want. I always used to tell sales reps, your raise becomes effective when you do. Uh-huh. <laughs> and as soon as we get good at what we're doing, we have a chance to earn more and more and more. And there's a greater level of control. And, and you've obviously made the most of that with your success and your own advancement. I remember very distinctly exactly where I was when I decided to become a district manager. And it was the Olean trip 2013. And you're going to get a kick out of this. We had a guest speaker. And I, for the life of and you're going to, you're going to laugh at me. For seven, eight years, I could not remember the guy's name who guest spoke at our Olean trip. It was John Oberg. Oh, John Oberg. Nice. And he gave a message to the entire region, the Eastern region on just, you know, how do you see your opportunity? And he was just going off on what the real world's like and opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. And, and I remember very distinctly, uh, cause I had to give one company an answer by that day. And I was at the conference and they called me in the middle of the conference, right after I just listened to John Oberg and they're like, you know, we need an answer to the offer. And I was like, no deal. And so <laughs> it was literally, I was, I, it was in Seneca Falls. And I remember very distinctly being at that conference center outside, taking a phone call and deciding that this is the place I wanted to be. So, Oh, that is such a great story. And of course, uh, John Oberg is legendary in business these days. And has been a guest on this podcast and really, really a great, great, insightful episode for anybody that hasn't heard it. Nice, nice. So tell us about uh, you know what you feel like are the characteristics that you've brought to be able to be so successful in your office and division so far. Yeah, I think personal standards. Definitely over the years, I've noticed that you know the personal standards that you hold yourself to are the standards that you're going to hold those around you to. And be it my upbringing or just the way I I view myself and I think everybody should view themselves as you should always hold yourself to the highest standard. And I think that goes back to from a very early age. I remember watching my grandfather work and I mentioned earlier that he's a 
commercial and industrial electrical contractor. And I just remember, you know, shadowing him and he'd open up an electrical box and the wires would be all over the place. And he would just start ripping them out and redoing them, even if it was somebody else's work. And just that kind of that lesson of you don't half ass it, right? If you're going to do it, do it right. And you got to have personal standards for yourself. And so I think I've always held myself to some pretty high standards. I'm very practical and logical. Sometimes I I don't know when to stop, you know, only when the job is finished. And and sometimes that can be a fault, but I really think in recognizing, recognition is, is over half the battle, recognizing the faults that you can have, but those can also be strengths in a way. And so for me, I set a goal, I go for it. And, and I really try and put others first. And I think I've learned some, some hard lessons over the years. And I think about a lesson that I, I learned and just rising through the ranks is, you know, I think about a, a quote very often that I like to share. It's, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, take others with you. And I just remember having a conversation with my dad one night and I was like, I kind of found myself in a position where I didn't really want to be and I wasn't really surrounded by the people that I wanted to be surrounded with in my business. And, you know, just learning the lesson of you can, you can blaze a trail to success, but what kind of destruction are you going to leave in your own wake? And, Mm -hmm. and you got to really take some time to put others first. And they're the ones that are going to help you get what you want. Mm. How did that shift in thinking manifest in your organization? You know, can you remember a time where, that switch really flipped and you began investing in your, in putting, truly putting your people first? I think it's when, whenever you find yourself in a position where you've got the title, you're making good money, you're getting the business, but something's missing. And if you keep finding that something missing, I have found that more oftentimes than not, it's, it's the community, it's the relationships, it's the it's the people that you can confide in and people that confide in you. And so I think there have been a couple occasions in my life where I've had to, to learn that lesson the hard way. Mm. That's a great point. Just that feeling of, you know, there being something missing despite you having some level of pretty good success. And oftentimes that's something that's missing is the, the relationships that you're building, the people you're impacting. Right. I think that so many young vector managers get into being a district manager because they feel like they can get a lot out of it. Right. They can have all these things that you described. They can have a nice income and a lifestyle and all of this. But the real reason why I think so many people stay in vector for so long as a manager is because they're impacting so many lives and you're really, really having this powerful influence on a lot of young people. And that feeling is so much more valuable than the paycheck that one is earning. So that was a great insight. And just also learning that, you know, wherever you go, you're there too. So whatever job you're in, whatever relationship, wherever you live physically, none of that can make you happy. Only you can make you happy. And so you've got to be good with yourself first. Nothing else really matters if you're not taking care of yourself. Right. Excellent insight. Parker, you referenced, uh, you know, being practical, logical, thinking through some of the different things that are happening, problems, challenges, etc. I'd love for you to speak to areas of opportunity you have, you know, a lot of people might call this weaknesses. And how do you think about these things? How do you think about mitigating them? 
Yeah. You know, I think personal, I, I know for a fact that, you know, I'm not a naturally a complimentary or encouraging individual. I've been told over the years that I can be difficult to work for and work with because of that. But I think it also stems from just kind of the standards that I hold for myself and, and thus those around me. And I've also had to teach myself and learn over the years that, you know, not everyone holds themselves to the same standards. And some people look at themselves as, you know, 50% of what you see them as. You might right. see the entire glass and they only see 50% of it. So I've really had to teach myself and learn over the years to fill in the other 50%, to fill up somebody else's glass the rest of the way. And so learning to praise people and recognize people is something that I've definitely had to learn. And it's a weakness that I've definitely found myself in over the years. I know that sometimes I, I can react to things versus responding. And so I try to really be introspective. And one thing I've learned is that you're never going to be great at everything. But you can certainly find somebody out there who is great at it and either steal from them or make it your own. But, you know, I really do believe that you need to, to make things your own or they will remain a weakness. And you can't be great at everything. There's plenty of people out there that, that have strengths where your weaknesses exist. And you can either develop them to play into those strengths or pay them to, uh, you know, eliminate them for you altogether. Right. Um, and just understanding that you're not going to be excellent at everything. So don't try to. Those were some excellent insights. The idea of playing to your strengths is so important for anybody running a business because there are so many things that have to happen in a successful operation, in a successful vector office, for example, or any business. And the leader just simply can't do them all. And you have to decide which things to do, which things to delegate, and which things to just completely eliminate as tasks in the organization as well. And those are, those are decisions that the leader can make that are very important. You also described it, Parker, being noticing yourself being reactive at times instead of responsive. And naturally, one of the keys to growth is awareness. And the fact that you're aware and that you see it, you catch yourself, is the first step in learning to do that less and less and less. And I think that anyone can evolve from being a reactive person to being a responsive person over a period of years of having that awareness. I would definitely say that the younger me was way more reactive than I am now. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, if I've heard many others describing me with like words like composure, for example, imagine yourself 20 years from now, Parker, right. I'm probably 20 years older than you. Imagine yourself 20 years from now being described as having great composure. Right. That's the evolution that I think occurs when somebody has awareness. Right. And you're on your, your way to that. And I think just also understanding that the next time you see me, and I can't remember what this is from or where it's from, and just I thought of it as we were kind of, as, as I was listening to you is, you know, the next time you see me, I'm going to be a better version of me. And we're always evolving. We're always changing. We're always growing. But like you said, awareness is, is the most important piece to that, where you can either choose to be aware of it or choose to ignore it. And if you choose to be aware of it, it's pretty hard to ignore it. Indeed. I also liked where you, you open this up by saying that you can be very hard driving and you're not always very complimentary. And a great insight that I would love to share with the audience on this is the idea of a three to one or greater ratio of positive influence versus negative influence. And when I say negative influence, it doesn't have to be negative. I mean, you know, anything where you are 
critical of somebody or trying to get them to improve something, just call that a negative input, let's say. And if there's at least three times as much where you're catching them doing things right, you're complimenting them, you're making them feel good about themselves, then those times where you do the opposite because you feel like you have to are much better received and people don't feel like you're constantly tearing them down or bringing them down or making them feel bad. Right. So learning to have at least that three to one or a greater ratio and l- consciously looking for opportunities to be complimentary, to catch people doing things right and to say something about it. That's a key insight I would have on that one. I think earlier, like I know from my mentor, Chad, I've learned, you know, just asking yourself the question, did I leave this person better than I found them? And mm-hmm. did I leave this conversation and this individual in that moment better off than we started? But also too, I think when you're, especially a younger manager, you don't see those gains in the positive praise, right? It's like, well, we got bullets flying, things to do, numbers to hit. And sometimes it can be, it can almost seem counterintuitive when you're kind of younger. I know speaking from firsthand experience when I was younger, it was like, well, what's the point? We're, we're not hitting our numbers anyway. And it's, well, that's what gets you the numbers. That's what gets you the business. That's what gets you the performance that you're hoping for. And so not being naive, and thinking that everyone's just going to perform at the level you want them to because you want them to. Yep. Great stuff. Now, as you're building the Tennessee division, Parker, what do you feel like are some of the things that you stand for as a leader in your organization? What do I stand for as a leader? I think don't panic is a big one. I really try and be kind of calm, cool, collected in a lot of situations that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're just selling knives. I, I remind my people that all the time, you know, we're not, we're not working in a hospital. No one's dying. It's in the grand scheme of things, it's going to be okay. So don't panic, you know, show up the right way. I really try and embody that personally, but also challenge my people to do it. Finding the silver lining is something that I think you can always do. We teach new representatives how to do this. You had your first no sale, celebrate it. I think as managers, it can be difficult to find the silver lining because we put this immense amount of pressure on ourselves. And so just keeping that positive mindset, definitely integrity in everything that we do, do things the right way. You know, how you impact one person can have ripple effects on the whole company because it is a, is a company built on word of mouth advertising and, and word of mouth marketing. And then we have some culture building philosophies in our division. And some of the most important ones that, that I believe we have are, you know, ask better questions. If you don't have the answer, keep asking. Somebody's going to have an answer to your question as long as you're asking better questions. Choose your circle of influence wisely. And then just keep in mind the bigger picture when things go awry. Things are going to go awry. It's going to happen. Something's going to mess up. Something's going to fail. But just really keep in mind the bigger picture. Yeah, that really ties into the first thing you said about don't panic because in what we're doing, right, the bigger picture goes so far beyond any one individual moment or failure that somebody might experience. I mean, a rep could have the worst demo, a manager could have a a flop that happens in a push period or stuff like that. And those things become little blips on the radar screen years later. And in fact, those things, I think, make us stronger. They give us better stories to tell as a leader and they enable us to relate to the challenges of others better. That really is the bigger picture when we're experiencing those challenges, you know, the minor challenges that come up is that uh, they're all helping make us stronger for the future. So when things go awry, I think keeping those things in mind is important, not panicking about any one individual challenge that comes up. 
And then there's so many other good things you said in there about just showing up the right way, looking for the silver lining, celebrating success, right? Maintaining integrity, asking better questions when all the challenges come up. Those are just some great insights that I think people can take and implement into their own uh, way of operating whatever it is that they're doing. So that was good stuff. Thanks. Yeah. So you have flipped a switch here in 2021, Parker. I guess it started toward the end of 2020 as you geared up for January. And you've gone from, you know, having produced solid results in the past to producing among the very best in the company, recruiting wise and sales wise here for the early part of this year. What's made the difference? Yeah, I think about the old saying of 10 year overnight success or five-year overnight, however long overnight success. And uh, I think for me, the switch that really needed to be flipped was delegation, is learning to not micromanage, not be involved as much. And it's scary. And it's, uh, it's definitely something that, that I struggle with. But really empowering people is something that I have made a huge stride in this last you know, year, essentially, is just delegating properly and encouraging people to make mistakes in their role and understanding that they're going to make mistakes. And even if it's not to the level that, that I would personally do it, one person can only do so much, but a team can do so much more and accomplish so much more. And you just got to give people the space to, to perform. And that's one thing I love about the company is, you know, at an early age, I was given that chance to make mistakes and learn from them. And giving people that same space in my own organization is something that I think has really made a huge difference this last year. How have you specifically done that here in the recent months? Departments, creating different departments and, and kind of, you know, in my own head, mapping it out, taking complex problems and making them really simple and, and finding solutions to those problems on a micro level. And then, you know, finding the right person for that, playing to strengths, kind of like we were talking about is, you know, there's somebody in your organization who, or past, right? You can always recruit somebody back. And even if it's somebody that it might be estranged and you haven't spoken to in a long time, if they're the right person and you want to work with them, let them know. And I think really taking on the, the role of being the leader to be the one that, that differentiates amongst the different departments in your organization and then finding the individuals that you're going to work through. And that delegation of you know, whether it's two, three, four, five department heads, whatever it may be, you know, really working through those two, three, four, five people which allows you as the leader, in my opinion, to, to really focus on the things that are going to make the difference for you. Not so yeah. much working, not so much working in the business at all times, but really working on the business and then it, working on the business with those people. Can you describe the departments that you have implemented with regard to recruiting that have really flipped the recruiting switch for you? Yeah. So the difference for me has been looking at each office in our organization as its kind of own entity, but then taking the recruiting side of the business and making that its own separate entity. Rather than looking at recruiting within each office as, as its own entity, looking at the recruiting for the whole division as one department. Mm -hmm. And so putting a divisional recruiting manager that oversees pretty much all the recruiting that's going to happen for our division under one department that we all feed into together. And so it's a collective unit that we are all benefiting and contributing to. And so all of our social media 
is handled under that department, as well as our personal recruiting program is all kind of handled under under one umbrella. And so really just allows me to kind of always have a pulse on what's going on in each you know, sub office within the division. Hmm. And how about in your own office? If you could speak to the vector managers listening right now specifically, what helped your own you know, pilot office to recruit so many people here in December and January and throughout this spring? Yeah. So in, in my own organization, I have a, a PR manager. So somebody that just manages our PRs. We have social media manager that manages all the social media. And then underneath each of them, we have probably one or two paid assistants that help them with the admin work. And so there's a lot of man hours put into it and allowing somebody the space to work on what they need to work on. You know, if, if somebody, well, that's another big thing that I've implemented thanks to Shayla Way as an executive assistant within the last year and a half is, you know, just the minute things that kind of get piled up on my desk that in the past I might have just ignored or not done learning to delegate those so that I can focus on on what I need to focus on. And, and we've really scaled that to other individuals in the division as well. So if somebody's like, hey, I'm spending too much time on XYZ, it's okay, well, what what of that needs to get delegated? How much of that needs to get delegated and, you know, put on somebody else's plate? And, you know, understanding everybody's part in the whole, I guess, rather than putting five things on one person's plate, putting two that are the big rocks on their plate getting them really good at those two big rocks and then taking the three other little pebbles and putting them on somebody else's plate. Right. Good stuff. Good stuff. I, I appreciate hearing that. I, I definitely think managers can can rethink how they're leveraging their staff. I think the standard way of leveraging staff is sort of a, you know, everybody does everything. We've got this big team of six, seven, eight assistant managers, but to really try to get to think about the idea of trying to get one person to really be in charge of driving a personal recruiting program, right. for example, and one person to really be in charge of driving a social media recruiting program, and then trying to make sure that they have a, a good right hand or two people that are helping them with within that little piece of the office, that could be a great formula for increasing recruiting for anybody. And as I think about some of the top recruiting offices in the Western region, I do feel like a number of them that I work with have had a key assistant who was really just driving the recruiting side of the business and and not involved in PDI or working with reps or other stuff, but really just making sure that their main responsibility was, let's get a big number of people into training in front of that district manager all the time. So on top of that, with the recruiting, just on the sales side, we've done kind of done the same thing where, you know, the pilot sales manager in our organization now really manages the sales managers and they're, they're really dedicated to managing the sales side of things, which allow them to, to a get really good at it rather than having to be a jack of all trades with everything. I mean, we all know what it's like when you're going into a summer or as a, as a new branch or even a sales manager or an assistant, you've got to learn everything. And it can be a little bit overwhelming versus what I have found has been really beneficial to us is you got to learn this one or two things. And then once you get really good at that, we can you know talk about adding more things to your plate. And I think that's really helped people ease into their roles rather than feel like they're drowning at all times. Yeah, exactly. Great stuff, Parker. Great stuff. Anything else uh, you've got for the Vector audience uh, before we wrap this up that you feel is important to share? Just have fun. <laughs> I've learned over the years, if you're not having fun while you do it, you're doing it wrong. And like I said, just keep in mind the bigger picture. 
and the grass is not always greener on the other side. You're, uh, I think I learned this from Amar DeVay, who was my region manager growing up in the business uh, in the old eastern region, is that uh, your grass is green where you water it. So water your own damn grass. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, uh, I've definitely taken that to heart over the years and, and learning that. Yep, exactly. Well, as you look into the future, Parker, what are you most excited about? Yeah, I'm excited about building our division. You know, we've kind of been in the building stages for, for a couple of years now, uh, working hard to get the right people on the bus, per se. And I'm just very bullish on our organization. And I want to build a, a division where young professionals can make mistakes and they can learn from those mistakes year over year. And one thing that I really appreciated about growing up in the business uh, at an early age is, you know, I tell my team this all the time, especially my my up and coming leaders, is that your parents, a lot of cases, are going to hold you accountable to your grades and studying and school, especially as a college student. Your friends are going to hold you accountable to being a college student, partying and having fun, and and you know, being in your in your early twenties and and late teens. But who's holding you accountable to your own personal? professional and financial goals. And for me, at an early age, that was Vector, that was Chad, that was Dave Powders, that was those were my mentors and and it allowed that third party influence and that positive peer pressure to make it cool to talk about personal growth because if I talk to my fraternity buddies or or my college buddies about the skills I was learning at 19, 20 years old, they would have just kind of laughed at me and said, okay, well, here's our next party we're going to on Friday night. Here's the next basketball or football game we've got going on. So I'm excited to build a, build a culture that people are excited to grow and want to grow. I love that. Just the idea that, uh, you know, people have others that are holding them accountable in different parts of life. And we're here to hold people accountable for their professional development. And that uh, there's so much that ties into that. That's a part of that, that we can help people with. And that was some really good stuff, man. Thanks so much for being part of the podcast, Parker. Yeah, thanks, Dan, for having me. All right. Parker Greedy, everyone. I really enjoyed hearing Parker's personal background and the powerful way in which his parents influenced him early in his life. I thought there was some great stuff that came out of that part. The lesson he learned as a branch manager about just finish what you start, that decisions have consequences. Again, such a powerful idea. And oftentimes in the moment, we really do not see the long-term consequences that can be had from the decisions that we make. Deciding to follow through with something, even if we're struggling to try to break through and get to success and keep our commitments, that can have an incredibly powerful effect in the long term, an incredibly powerful consequence in the long term versus the opposite, which is just very quickly writing something off as like, oh, this is not for me or I'm not good at this and giving up on things quickly. It's so important to learn not to give up on things quickly in all aspects of life, keeping the door open for our opportunities. Parker talked about that and choosing to become a district manager because of the freedom and flexibility that he had and the ability to make a name for himself, right? To truly be responsible for his own success. I love that it was a message from John Oberg that powerfully influenced Parker to become a district manager. John Oberg was a guest in episode number 148. If you are an executive leader of any type, whether it be a district manager or above in vector, leading your own organization, 
I would strongly recommend you put John Oberg's episode number 148 at or near the top of your list to listen. The idea that Parker shared about how he always wanted to make sure the next time that you see him, that he would be better, right? I feel like that's a quote that I can remember hearing from Andrew Smallwood in an episode with him, which was episode number 148. And for any of you who are sales reps, put that one at the top of your list to go back and listen to. So many good insights from Andrew Smallwood about just getting better every day. Parker echoed a lot of those same things in terms of how he thinks about his areas of opportunity, how he analyzes his business on a regular basis and just works to be improving all the time. And the key to that, of course, is awareness. And that awareness comes when you pay attention. Pay attention daily to how you're doing. Be willing to look at the different metrics of your business as an indicator of how things are going. And those are all things that can help you to continue to improve. Parker's done a lot of work to grow his results. Off to a great start here in 2021. He shared some specific recruiting insights in Vector that all of you who are current Vector managers can take to heart. Overall, lots of great insights, lots of good value here. I want to thank Parker Grevy for being part of the podcast. I want to thank you for being a loyal listener and supporting the podcast. And I hope that you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 